Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. I'm CNN's Thomas Lake and host of The James Brown Mystery, a new podcast where I attempt to answer the question, was the godfather of soul murdered? My investigation began a few years ago when I received a call from Jackie Hollander, who knew James Brown and claimed to have proof that he was murdered. My podcast follows our investigation. Here's the first episode in the series. I hope you're as captivated by this mystery as I am. This morning at 1.45 a.m., Mr. James Brown passed away. He was 73 years young. He sat down on the bed, and he laid back on the foot of the bed, and he sighed very, very quietly and very gently three times. Then he closed his eyes, and he was dead. At a press conference in a drab hotel ballroom, with a lonely Christmas tree in the corner, James Brown's managers broke the news of his death. Brown, known worldwide as the godfather of soul, died on Christmas morning 2006 at a hospital in Atlanta. His death certificate blamed a heart attack and fluid in the lungs. There was no autopsy, no investigation, no obvious sign to question the official narrative, which said Brown was old and sick, and he died of natural causes. By 2017, at the beginning of the story I'm about to tell you, Brown had been dead for a decade. I was a reporter sitting in my cubicle at CNN Center in Atlanta. And one day, a call came in through the main switchboard. On the phone was a woman talking about James Brown's death. What she said was so astonishing that I eventually got on a plane and went to see her at her workplace which was, in fact, a traveling circus. That was five years ago, five of the strangest years of my life. As I investigated the circus singer's explosive allegations, something dawned on me. In spite of all the books and movies and TV shows about one of the most famous humans of the 20th century, not many people knew the real story of James Brown. Sure, most of us know that song, I Got You, I Feel Good. Or maybe this one, Papa's Got a Brand New Bag. Papa's Got a Brand New Bag. Even if you don't recognize those songs, there's a good chance you've come across some version of Brown's work. So many musicians put clips of Brown's music in their own songs that he's considered the most sampled artist of all time. His unique sound laid the foundation for new music genres like funk and hip-hop, and he inspired some of the biggest pop stars to pursue musical careers, including Usher, Bruno Mars, and Michael Jackson. Ever since I was a small child, my mother would wake me, no matter what time it was, to watch the television to see the master at work. 
I've never seen a performer perform like James Brown. And right then and there, I knew that that was exactly what I wanted to do for the rest of my life. Brown wasn't just a groundbreaking entertainer whose musical influence endures today. He was also a streetwise former boxer who knew how to handle a gun. He was tough. And he had this unshakable confidence that came through loud and clear when he performed on stage. But here's something about Brown you may not have heard. Something I didn't know until I was pulled into his world. James Brown lived in fear. Mr. Brown never, ever, 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 ever was alone because he always felt that somebody was out to get him. Brown had several reasons to be afraid. In 1955, when Brown was 22, he was the leader of a band called The Famous Flames. They were playing nightclubs around Macon, Georgia, but they couldn't quite break through. Then, one day, Brown told them he was going to sell his soul to the devil. He was gone for a day or two. When he came back, he was confident that he and The Famous Flames were about to take off. A few months later, Brown released the first of more than a hundred radio hits. Please, 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 please. That song, Please, 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 started Brown's career, one of the most remarkable in the history of show business. But as his music took off, he found new reasons to be afraid. In 1968, Brown was headlining a concert in Boston, and the crowd got out of control. Now, I asked the police to step back because I figured I could get some respect for my own people. That makes sense. And all we together, we. It was the day after Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated, and tensions were running high. Brown was trying to keep the peace and prevent a riot in Boston while other cities burned. This concert would become a turning point in Brown's life. He would later say this is when he fell under surveillance by the United States government, especially the FBI and the CIA, because he was getting too powerful. For the rest of his life, the godfather of Seoul was afraid of government agents hiding in the shadows. He would always use the word they. They are watching. They this, they that. That's just the way he felt up until the day he died. In 2017, a few months after the circus singer called me, I got on a plane and went to see her. And this is what she told me about James Brown's death. I've just kept it quiet. If someone didn't ask me, I didn't tell. James Brown was murdered. This podcast is the story of how a phone call from a circus singer five years ago led me on a quest to solve the mystery of James Brown's death, and eventually the mysterious death of another person, James Brown's third wife, Adrian. It's also about how the circus singer was drawn into Brown's strange and perilous world. As I got lost in this world, too, I learned that James Brown was obsessed with the U.S. government, especially the CIA. So I looked high and low for the CIA's fingerprints, and I thought a lot about why James Brown was so afraid. Toward the end of his life, there was a man in his inner circle who drained millions of dollars from Brown's accounts 
and used Brown's fear of the government against him. He bragged about his government connections. Sometime in 2006, Brown decided he'd had enough. He was done with the coercion, the exploitation, the threats. Three people close to Brown told me he made a plan to leave the South and get far away from the man who'd been threatening him. But James Brown died before he could make his escape. From CNN, this is The James Brown Mystery. I'm your host, Thomas Lake. This is episode one, The Circus Singer. Here's why the circus singer called me out of all the reporters in the world. I'd written a story about James Brown several years earlier. Actually, it was a story about Brown's son-in-law, Darren Chip Lumar. He had said the same thing the circus singer told me on the phone. James Brown's death should be investigated. There's not a bone in my body believed that my father-in-law died from congestive heart failure. That's Lumar. In 2007, shortly after Brown died, he gave an interview to Tony McNary on the local CBS station. Lumar called for an investigation into his father-in-law's death. He also texted someone close to him to say he knew James Brown had been murdered. The following year, Lumar himself was mysteriously shot to death. When he drove up to, uh, to park his car in the garage, he was confronted. An altercation of some sort took place, and that's when the victim was shot. It, it appeared to be multiple times. The sequence was startling. Chip Lumar alleged foul play in James Brown's death, and then he was gunned down, apparently in a contract killing. Was Chip Lumar murdered for suggesting that his father-in-law was murdered? I had my doubts. As I discovered, there were other plausible explanations for Lumar's death. Lumar was a con man. He'd cheated so many people that the police had an unusual problem in the investigation of his murder. There were too many possible suspects. But then the circus singer called me and told me I was wrong. Wrong about James Brown and wrong about Chip Lumar. She said Lumar was killed because he told the truth about James Brown being murdered. I was still skeptical. But the circus singer kept calling, kept texting kept inviting me to come see what she claimed was a treasure trove of evidence. Finally, my editor told me to go check it out. So I did. Trust me, I couldn't make all this up. If I sat around bored, eating bonbons all day, I could not write this. I mean, even if I was the most crazy, insane woman in the world... I couldn't write this story and be able to tell it to you with such clarity. That's Jackie Hollander on the day we first meet in 2017, when she's 61 years old. She has platinum blonde hair, heavy eyeliner, and hot pink nails. I pick her up in my rental car from her motor home, which is parked outside Chicago with the Carson Barnes Circus. As we drive to get lunch at Panera, it soon becomes clear that Jackie has a lot to say and never enough time to say it. Before she gets into how she knows so much about James Brown's death, or how she knows anything about James Brown, she's already talking about another mystery. I'm sure you know that Adrian Brown was my good friend. 
That's a very long story, and when I tell you about it, there's no doubt she was murdered. Yeah, I know. This is a lot. According to Jackie, it's not just James Brown and his son-in-law who were murdered. She says Brown's third wife, Adrian, who died in 1996, was murdered too. And there are other deaths in the Browns' world she finds suspicious. She rambles on about them through lunch. It seems like each new question sends her on another epic story, with the cast of characters getting larger and larger. As I try to make sense of all this, our conversation is interrupted. certainly know what that theme song means by now. That's right. It's another phenomenal episode of Bruce Barron's Vegas USA. Jackie gets on the phone to be a guest on a live show for KCKQ Radio. On board right now. Jackie, are you in Chicago? Yes, actually we are. We're in Toyota Park. Uh, we're getting ready for a uh, four-day stand here. It turns out Jackie does more than put on a long red coat and sing a Broadway-style tune at the end of every Carson and Barnes circus performance. She's also a record producer and songwriter. That's how she met James Brown. Back in the 80s, he sang lead on a song she wrote for the Atlanta Falcons pro football team. It was called Atlanta Will Be Rockin'. This song with James Brown is a big part of the reason the Vegas USA hosts invited Jackie on today. Since you worked with James Brown, what was James Brown really like? He was very eccentric. He was very egotistical. He was very, very uh, difficult to work with. He was a perfectionist. And if you were not perfect, you suffered because of it. Wow. Jackie says working with James Brown on the Falcon song and other projects would eventually destroy her career and nearly ruin her life. But before it did, James Brown confided in her, as a close friend might do. Back in my car after the interview, she tells me about one of these moments. James Brown used to say to me, Jackie D., I am the most powerful black man in the world. Some of what Brown told her sounds pretty hard to believe. And he said to me, the government is involved in my life. For the rest of your life, you will know things that the United States government has a need for because of my worldwide power. He said, because if I can calm a riot, I can start one. When he told me that years ago, I thought he was crazy. But I can sit here 30 years later and tell you, he told the truth. The federal government, the CIA, I've all been involved in this. And I know it sounds crazy. If I'm going to walk away and move on to the next story, this would be the moment to do just that. But for some reason, I keep listening to the circus singer. Maybe it's the feeling that comes through, as if these stories have really cost her something. And at times, Jackie's memory seems so precise, 
also, whether she knows it or not, she's telling my favorite kind of story. The kind where someone small and weak takes on someone big and powerful and just keeps fighting no matter what. So, am I disoriented? Yes. Mesmerized? Also, yes. Do I sometimes feel so incredulous that she can see it on my face? Oh, no. Wait. I knew Wait. this was going to become hard for you Wait. to I'm handle. Sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I know. I know. So please, please, I've got to get all this stuff out because you're going to go insane. That sounds like a good idea to me. Less telling, more showing. It's a blinding hot day in early June as we get out of the car and go into Jackie's motorhome, this cozy old hideaway she calls the Blue Goose. I should apologize for the sound quality here. At this point, I'm not a podcaster, just an old-fashioned newsman with a pen, a notebook, and a pocket-sized recorder I use to double-check my quotes. I have a storage vault with 17 crates of evidence. What's in the 17 crates? All this stuff on James Brown, my life, everything I've been through. When you're up against the most powerful person in the world, you have to document and you have to investigate yourself and you better prove everything you're saying because nobody's going to believe you unless you can prove it. And that's why everything I'm saying to you, I can prove. Jackie's story is all over the place, slipping into the wind like the smoke from her cigarettes. I need to contain it somehow. Find one thing small and tangible enough to understand. Something related to the death of James Brown. The main reason she called. I need her to start proving the story she told me on the phone. I need cold, hard evidence. Jackie tells me there's something she's not supposed to have. A box of evidence she's been carrying in her motorhome. A box that could solve the mystery, she says. Or maybe get her killed. So I've just met Jackie, the circus singer, and now we're standing outside her motorhome. She wants to show me that box of evidence which could rewrite the story of how James Brown died. The box is heavy. How strong are you? Strong enough. She opens a storage compartment on the motorhome's undercarriage, revealing a green plastic storage bin. So we've got a green plastic top that says James Brown. Hey, you want to take it in my house? You want to do it right now? You tell me if that, maybe, maybe that's a little more safe. So I lug this heavy box inside the motorhome where I meet Jackie's cats, Ralph and Maverick, along with Pickles, the Chihuahua. There's a little fountain inside with a sculpture of a seahorse that reminds Jackie of her favorite place, the beach. That's what you hear in the background as we make a plan for how to go through this box. You want me to just, like, rummage through this stuff? I want you to open the bag and rummage through it. Is this normal? you put on the gloves and you rummage through it? And I'll watch you and, and take notes wanna, on it. I'm real worried so eventually, after a little more negotiation, Jackie puts on the gloves and starts going through the bin. 
There's a black nylon bag in there, and inside the bag is an odd collection of objects, many of them articles of clothing, and a pair of black stiletto shoes. But these items aren't Jackie's. It turns out they belonged to another woman, one who spent time with James Brown in the last days of his life. She kept telling me this medical bag will prove her innocence of the death of James Brown. But when I got the bag, it does nothing but prove she's guilty. And she was crazy and she was crying and she said, Jackie D, I think I killed him. I try to take this in. Did the woman who owned this bag kill James Brown? In a later episode, I'll talk to this woman, and she'll vehemently deny killing Brown or harming him in any way. Authorities have never named her as a suspect in Brown's death. But Jackie? She sees it differently. Jackie is trying very hard to tell me about the woman who owned the stilettos, about how Jackie got this box, and the bag inside the box, and the shoes inside the bag. She says there could be lethal drug residue on the shoes. And if an autopsy were done on James Brown, more than 10 years after his death, those same drugs could be detected in Brown's body, and Jackie's theory would be proven right. In short, Jackie thinks James Brown was poisoned to death. And she's convinced that even today, if an autopsy were done on his body, drugs would be found. Drugs that caused the Godfather of Soul to die of unnatural causes on Christmas 2006. And yes, you can find it. The drugs, 10 years later. Wait. But even if it's like a skeleton in a box? If, if this drug is in his system, it is still, it is still... Andre White left with a bottle of blood from his body in the hospital. Andre White. Now we've got yet another new character in this drama I'm struggling to comprehend. Looking back on this now, I'm amazed and embarrassed that I don't stop here and ask for further explanation. Jackie's just told me that a man named Andre White took a vial of blood from James Brown's body at the hospital a few minutes after he died. Can that possibly be true? I should have said, tell me everything you know about that. But by this point, I've been listening to her for hours. I'm dazed and numb. Later, I'll track down Andre White, and he'll tell me exactly what Jackie claimed he would. He did, in fact, take a vial of James Brown's blood, and he still has it. But for now, I just let Jackie keep going, and she just keeps dropping these bombs. And the doctor told me on the phone, I got James Brown cleaned up. I checked him at 10 o'clock that night. He was going to be released the next morning. Which doctor told you that? Dr. Crawford. What on earth? Now Jackie's claiming that Dr. Marvin Crawford, who treated Brown in his last hospital stay and signed his death certificate, talked with her on the phone about Brown's case. He was on the phone with me for almost two hours. And he said, I saw James Brown and he was fine. And I wasn't in my car an hour. And I got a call to go back to the hospital. When I got in there, I worked on him and he was gone. Once again, Jackie's telling me something astonishing. 
The doctor who signed James Brown's death certificate suspected that Brown did not die of natural causes. Later, I'll find this doctor, and much to my surprise, he'll tell me the same disturbing story that Jackie says he told her. But right now, I just let her keep talking. We get back in my rental car and go out for dinner. See those little signs? I'm going to teach you a little lesson. See those little arrows? Yeah, I do. On the drive to the restaurant, Jackie points to a small white sign taped to a utility pole on the side of the road. On this sign are tiny black arrows. The circus routes, and you'd never notice those if I had not told you. We don't travel with directions. Those are our directions all across the United States. Continuously, you will see these arrows. Only circus people know how to follow them. Later, I look up the circus arrows online. Turns out these little signs are everywhere. They're attached to telephone poles by advanced circus scouts. All over the roads of America, hiding in plain sight. Going down the freeway, you'll see them. Most people don't know. Every circus has their own color. Yeah. This means three means to turn. You're here. Two and one means you're coming down past two streets. Take the last one. You're right. It's a secret language. It is. The circus has a secret language. Jackie's letting me into a secret world. And if her stories are true, they might be even bigger than James Brown. They could be an entire secret history. Welcome to the circus. Oh, it's already 9.30. Your mind's pretty fried by now, isn't it? I'm not gonna say that I'm not spinning a little bit. So I say goodnight to the circus singer, and I fly home to Atlanta. What she's told me is intriguing, and confusing, and genuinely scary. Here's the clearest theme that emerges in Jackie's stories. Someone is killing people to keep the truth concealed. And now she wants me to step in? To try to bring out the truth that got other people killed? A few nights later, I pick up my two-year-old and go for a walk in the moonlight. One of my favorite traditions. Cool and quiet. Nothing to fear. The moon is playing hide and seek. Yeah. Yeah, the moon is playing hide and seek. Three little kids, a fourth on the way. My wife staying home, my paycheck paying the mortgage. A circus singer is asking me to help her solve the mystery of James Brown's death. What am I doing? Am I going crazy? What am I willing to risk for this story? I talk it over with my editor and decide to book another flight to Chicago, hoping to see what the circus singer claims is in her storage vault. Jackie says she'll show me 17 new crates of evidence that will back up her theories about James Brown. Then I get a phone call. It's Jackie. She says three rough-looking men wearing sunglasses came to the circus the other night. They sat in the front row and took in the show. 
but they didn't seem to enjoy it. No smiles, no applause, and they left their shades on the whole time. To Jackie, it's a sign. Someone wants her to know she's being watched. Hours before my flight takes off, I wake up, terrified. It's still not too late to back out of this story. As I think of canceling my trip, I close my eyes and pray. In my mind, a word appears, as bright as a neon sign. A small word with major consequences. Go. Jackie Hollander, the grand dame of the Karsten Barnes Circus, singing under the big top. Jackie wrote this song, and now she's singing it, swaggering around the ring, waving to children, shaking their hands. She's in her element now, reveling in this moment, sparkling under the lights in her long red coat. This woman whose life contains so many mysteries, so many audacious claims that require proof. It's hard to make sense of what she showed me on my first trip to Illinois. The items in the green plastic bin, a note from James Brown, bills and receipts going back decades. They seem to prove something, but I haven't quite figured out what. As we drive to her storage unit one morning, Jackie says she's got something more straightforward. There's a videotape she wants me to see of a polygraph test she took 22 years ago, administered by a former FBI agent. According to Jackie, this tape doesn't just relate to one of her claims about James Brown. It confirms this claim. And the whole thing, her statement, the questioning, the results, all of it is on VHS. But first... She has to find this tape. I'm like a little squirrel. I put stuff in one place. I put it in another place. So that if somebody goes after one thing, they're only going to get one thing. You know what I'm saying? They're not going to get it all. You following me? When we get to the storage unit... Jackie rolls up the gray-blue sliding door, sets her hot pink cigarette lighter on the hood of my car, and digs through a lot of old stuff, looking for the VHS tape that shows her taking the polygraph test. It's a jumbled mess in there. Countless boxes mixed in with old furniture. Even an upright piano once played by the rock star Greg Allman of the Allman Brothers Band. She pulls out a tall standing mirror. A gust of wind blows it over, face first on the black top. Somehow, it doesn't break. But still, no tape. If I told you that I have a tape, okay, you could put it in the bank that I'm not lying to you. I want to believe she's not lying to me, but I'll need to see the proof. So Jackie keeps looking for the tape. First, she comes across a torn sheet of paper. That's what I want on my gravestone. That entire quote from Sir yes. Arthur Conan Doyle? Yes. You have eliminated the impossible. Whatever remains, however improbable, must be the truth. It's in my will. 
It's in your will that this quote yes. will be on your gravestone. Yes. When you have eliminated the impossible, whatever remains, however improbable, must be the truth. That's a quote from Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, the author who dreamed up Sherlock Holmes. She wants these words on her gravestone. Jackie says she's written this into her will. For so many years, she's had a story to tell. And the story has gotten bigger and bigger that whole time. And she's tried so hard to get someone to believe her. What am I missing here? If no one else believed her, why should I? Really, I had it all. I had the whole truth. They just never gave me a chance. Well, here I am, a reporter from one of the largest news organizations in the world. Here's her chance to finally get that story out. But I still need to see that videotape. I believe it's in that box. Jackie pulls out a brown cardboard box of videotapes. Some have labels and some don't. Only one way to find out what's on them. We go back to her motorhome and start popping them into the VCR. Am I doing this right? Yeah, I just, it, it's old. Everything's old I got. It's finicky. It'll eventually go in and sit. There it goes. See? You may have to push play. It's old like me. This tape shows a much younger Jackie. And there, on her right, the godfather of soul. You know something, James? I, I don't think I'm alone when I say that the world loves you because you are a legend and a superstar. This is not what I was looking for, but it could be an important part of my story. It's video proof that Jackie was indeed connected to James Brown. In the video, a promotion for a charity event in 1988, Jackie and James are sitting outdoors together. He's in a white tracksuit, and she's wearing khakis and has long, wavy hair. As the camera rolls, James gives Jackie, who was Jackie Daughtry then, a ringing endorsement. Saying I feel good enough, enough I'm real when it comes to things like this. Uh, not part of my title song, but part of my, my in-depth and my gut feeling. I'm real because... Uh, people like the lovely Miss Jackie Dodge, who is a star on right, because you got a great voice, and hopefully I want to see you a lot on television. <laughs> thank you, James Brown, and I love you. God bless you. Thank you so very much. To me, this is a big deal. They didn't just meet each other once. James Brown, one of the biggest stars in the music world, just called Jackie a star. This was 29 years ago before she ran off with the circus and put most of her earthly possessions into a jumbled storage unit. Did we go through all those? I believe we did. All right, hang on. We're going to get to the bottom of this. There's more tapes than this, trust me. We've watched tape after tape after tape. Footage Jackie recorded many years ago of strange vehicles outside her house. A TV news package about an event called Wrestle Rock. Lots of static, snow on the screen, ancient soap operas. We're lost in a VHS wilderness. 
What is vibrance? Vibrance is your hair full of life. But we can't find the tape with the polygraph test. It's not that I don't believe Jackie at this point, but if she can't produce the evidence, I don't have a story. That tape has got to be in another bag at the warehouse. You think? Oh, I don't think. I haven't lost it. I mean, it's... The stakes feel pretty high as we return to the storage unit the next morning. I've been patient, but I'm running out of time. My editor will want answers soon. Can Jackie find the tape? Has she hidden it from herself? Is it even real? She keeps rifling through her belongings. What you got there? She hands me a black VHS tape with an official-looking label. Jackie Daughtry, Forensic Polygraph, March 9, 1995, Examiner R.D. Rackliff. Finally, we're in business. So we head back to Jackie's motorhome and turn on the VCR. Jackie gets ready for the circus while I watch the tape. The opening title card says, J. Daughtry, Forensic Polygraph Examination, March 9, 1995. We see a room with white walls, a lamp casting a weird glow above Jackie's head. She's 22 years younger. Jackie sits in a chair with a thick blue sleeve wrapped around her upper right arm. Okay, I'm gonna start with your name. Are you known as Jackie Duckley? Yes. A middle-aged man sits in a chair behind her, wearing glasses and a crisp white shirt. This is Richard Ratcliffe, or Dick, as she calls him the former FBI agent giving her the test. He looks down at the peaks and troughs of the line that forms as Jackie answers each question. Do you intend to be truthful on this polygraph test? Yes. As I watch this tape in the circus singer's motorhome in 2017, I don't know what's ahead. I don't know I'll go on to interview more than 200 people and review tens of thousands of documents in a sprawling investigation that examines the adventurous lives and suspicious deaths of James Brown and his wife, Adrian. I don't know about the long nights lying awake and afraid, or the strange encounters with a man called Ghost. I have no way of knowing that once I step into this world with the circus singer, I won't be able to leave. Don't know I'll be stuck there for five years, maybe longer, resembling less and less the person who went in. What I do know as I watch this tape is that we've reached a turning point. Jackie was as good as her word. She said she could find this tape, and it turned out she could, and its contents are just as she described. Time and again over the next five years, she'll tell me things that sound hard to believe. Time and again, they will prove to be true. I'm telling the truth. I believe you, Jackie. Test shows you're being truthful. Test shows you're being truthful, the FBI man tells Jackie. Here's that small, tangible thing I've been looking for. Something concrete I can bring back to my editor to show this is a story worth pursuing. The more I learn about Jackie, the clearer this becomes. All her stories are connected.
You can't understand James Brown's death until you go back and study Adrian Brown's death. You can't understand Adrian's death until you go back even further to learn about the incident that led Jackie to take this polygraph test. And you can't appreciate all Jackie lost until you know what she had when she first entered the world of James Brown. On the next episode of The James Brown Mystery. He said hello, and he asked me what I wanted to be when I grew up. And I said, I want to be a songwriter, and I want to write big songs. That ended up trapping Jackie Hollander in a world she couldn't escape. He screams, who wrote this song? All my friends, why are you hanging out with these people? You're going to end up getting hurt. I was warned many times. And led Jackie to one of the darkest moments of her life. While you were in the van with James Brown that day, were you afraid that you were going to be killed? Yes. The James Brown Mystery is hosted and reported by me, Thomas Lake. Our executive producer is Abby Fentress Swanson. Our senior producer is Felicia Patinkin, and our producers are Rachel Cohn, Anne Lagamayo, Lori Galaretta, and Jennifer Lai. Our associate producers are Emmanuel Johnson, Nathan Miller, and Sonia Tun. And our production assistant is Eden Getachu. Our story editor is David Weinberg, and our production manager is Tamika Balance Kolasny. Liz Roberts and Kira Posey lead audience strategy for our show. Jameis Andrus and Nicole Pesseru designed our artwork. Erica Wong is our mix engineer and sound designer. Selena Uthave is our assistant sound engineer. And Dan DeZula is CNN Audio's senior manager of production operations. Theme and original music composed by David Steinberg and Nathan Miller. Special thanks to Mia Taylor, Courtney Coop, Katie Hinman, Lindsay Abrams, Robert Mathers, Dalila Paul, Andrea White, Anissa Gray, Janita Du, Ram Ramgopal, Lisa Namaro, and John Dianora. That was the premiere episode of my new podcast, The James Brown Mystery. New episodes drop every Friday. Follow and listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or your favorite podcast app.